This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Most older Americans are dealing with multiple health issues that might send them to see different doctors or to different health facilities. But what if these different providers were working together to deliver care to the patient? That's the idea behind accountable care organizations which deal with Medicare patients. The goal of ACOs is to eliminate inefficiencies, control costs, and to improve overall health outcomes. However, these groups have run into conflict with the Stark Law, which was created to keep physicians from referring patients to services in which they may have a financial interest. Last week, the Department of Health and Human Services announced they were looking at overhauling the Stark Law by the end of the year. To delve into this issue deeper, we're joined here in studio by Genevieve Cantor, who's a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute for Health Economics here at the Wharton School. She's also an assistant professor at the Perelman School of Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us, Mark Pauly, professor of healthcare management and business economics and public policy here at Wharton. They have new research in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Coordination of Care or Conflict of Interest, Exempting ACOs from the Stark Law. And it's a pleasure to have uh, both Jenny and Mark here in studio with us today. Thank you both for coming in. Sure. Happy to be here. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, so I guess let's let's set a base here, Jenny, and where the conflict is in terms of these ACOs and the Stark Law. How, how does the conflict kind of arise to begin with? Okay, so I think uh, in order to answer that question, uh, we should talk about two things. One is exactly what an ACO is and um, how it's organized. So an ACO, an accountable care organization, is a group of doctors and hospitals uh, that typically uh, have historically not worked together, but here they're going joined together to jointly contract to uh, deliver care for a specified population of patients. Um, and this is important because uh, one of the issues with our healthcare system is a fragmented care. So for example, um, as we mentioned in the New England piece, you know, if you are a typical Medicare patient um, with cardiovascular disease or uh, coronary artery disease, you will typically see about uh, six doctors uh, in a given, uh, sorry, 10 doctors in a given year over six different sites. And so people think that that's uh, undesirable. And so ACOs are designed to help doctors and hospitals coordinate care. Now, um, one of the things they do to coordinate care is that doctors can refer patients to hospitals, even hospitals that they're not employed by. And this uh, conflicts with the Stark Law. And the Stark Law is, well, shall we say, a very complicated piece of legislation. Right. So, um, you know, there have been conferences, week-long conferences on the Stark Law. We have 30 minutes. So I'll give you the Twitter version <laughs> of it. Okay. Um, so, so basically, this was uh, legislation introduced by uh, Pete Stark, a former congressman in California in 1989. And over the last 15 years, there have been multiple changes in the legislation as well as in the regulations. And it's meant to... Um, uh, it's known as the, physi excuse me, <clears throat> the physician self-referral law, and it's meant to prohibit certain kinds of physician referrals. Right. So, for example, say you go see a doctor and, you know, you have lower back pain. You've been sitting in a studio all day and the doctor says, hey, you know, you know, back pain is really difficult to diagnose. I don't know how, you know, I with what I have here in my you know, physical exam, I'm not quite able to do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you to get a better diagnosis. I'm going to send you to an imaging facility. You need an yeah. MRI. And um, I actually know of a really good one 
just down okay. the block. Yeah. And um, so they'll you know, they'll set you up, and and then I'll be able to see the MRI and really diagnose you. Uh, what the doctor doesn't tell you is first that MRIs are actually almost completely uninformative in terms of uh, helping doctors diagnose back pain uh, for a variety of reasons. But secondly, what the doctor also doesn't tell you is he may have a financial stake in the uh, in the imaging facility. And so the Stark Law is meant to um, uh, sort of prohibit those kinds of referrals. And where this ma maps into ACOs is that because um, ACOs are in these uh, joint arrangements where they can share savings um, by coordinating care, uh, They, but they also have referral systems so the doctors can refer patients to the hospital, um, they conflict with this prohibition on physician self-referral. How, how much of a concern, Mark, has there really been uh, about potential violations of the Stark Law over the course of time? Oh, uh, before the ACO era, a lot, uh, because uh, oh, there's a lot of jealousy uh, in the healthcare sector, and uh, uh, you know people don't want other people profiting, and and neither do neither do uh, patients want their physicians being motivated by profit rather than by what's best for the patient. So, uh, um, so uh, it. Um, and it, although it has been a, a make-work program for lawyers, there is no doubt about that, too. But certainly uh, it, it, it has influenced the configuration of the traditional fee-for-service sector substantially, uh, essentially by saying, uh, well, as, as Jenny said, you, you as a physician, you'll be punished if you refer a profitable business to some facility in which you have part ownership. Right. And and the concern then obviously is when you think of the greater scope of uh, of the business community that goes on that type of referral goes on you know on an everyday basis but we're talking about something within the medical community which is a much different a much different uh, factor here in terms of that referral and again as you mentioned the potential of having some sort of financial interest in that other that secondary business that's right I mean there's plenty of evidence at least in the healthcare sector that physicians who are uh, who financially benefit from the referrals they make uh, tend to do a lot more for their patients. They uh, prescribe more drugs. If they can benefit from the prescriptions, they uh, you know order more tests. They order more uh, imaging if they can financially benefit. That results in you know not good outcomes necessarily for the patient. Certainly in unnecessary care, we think, um, as well as greater healthcare spending and just waste. So the go ahead, Mark. I'm you'd, sorry. You'd like I guess think the punchline is you'd like your physician to be giving you advice or making decisions about referrals based on what's best for you. Sure. Uh, although maybe a little bit about what's best for Medicare, uh, <laughs> yeah. if, if it was cheaper. But um, but the problem is or the problem has been in the fee-for-service side that the prices that Medicare would pay to this imaging facility you would own would be higher than the cost so there'd be profit so you'd be tempted to refer to the facility you own so so having created the temptation Medicare or the government then has to put in rules saying you shouldn't sin. Well, and, and wouldn't it also uh, increase the potential of doctors who would want to, if maybe they they hadn't been, had a, a a financial interest in an MRI facility or some other entity, buy one, they yeah. would want to go out and yeah. buy one themselves, yeah. Yeah, and, that's right. and it kind of just multiplies down the, down the yeah, road. Yeah, now in ACOs, many of them have basically a fee-for-service chassis, meaning although they get paid 
in the ideal version, a fixed dollar amount per patient, then in terms of contracting for services, they pay doctors and hospitals, and those doctors and hospitals get paid per service, and they're yeah. subject to these same kinds of temptation because they're being paid fee for service. So it's a little more complicated because the top-line ACO that's getting the money, if they were just greedy for money, would want patients to get fewer referrals and less care, and they'd head off to Mexico with the money. Yeah. But uh, but on the other hand, the people further down are still subject to the same kind of temptation that has persisted. And uh, uh, yeah, and so we kind of asked ourselves in this article, after uh, Jenny turned up this uh, feature, is there a better way? So that, that's kind of the, where, where it ended up. Jenny? I was going to mention, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the issue of uh, the incentives this creates for doctors to actually purchase their own um, imaging equipment. The weird thing, one of, well, there are multiple weird things about the Stark Law, which I hope we'll be able to get into. Yeah. But one of the weird things about the Stark Law is it, um, it really regulates referral. So there's sort of an arm's length relationship yeah, between sure. the doctor and the facility they're referring to. Sure. Um, and one of the things about the Stark Law is because of its you know, ma accumulating and massive number of exceptions, uh, it actually gives doctors an incentive to, because they're sort of discouraged from referring to a facility where they can financially benefit, it actually encourages them to purchase the imaging equipment, get it within mm -hmm. the physician group, get it within the physician practice, and then, then they're uh, good on the Stark Law. Yeah, yeah. At, at so, the other extreme, if, if I were a physician over at Perlman, a salaried physician, uh, I could and probably would refer people for MRIs for lower back pain if they insist on it uh, to Perlman. Uh, well, people would say, well, I'm salaried, so I don't benefit financially from that. But right. I do benefit financially if uh, the overall system makes a lot of money, which it's doing. And uh, it may be even in some systems other than ours, right. uh, the co compensation for a physician may depend on how much rain they cause to fall in the system as a whole. So, so it was... Uh, 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 kind of a, the you know the Dutch boy with the finger in the dike yeah. uh, s type yeah. of law because there was water pouring in on both sides. It, around it. It, it sounds like then what we are potentially looking at if the Health and Human Services is going to look at the Stark Law and whether or not it should be changed and or kept up to date is we are looking at the, uh, the potential continuing push to to cut regulations that, that we've seen from. Uh, from this administration, and as we know, that the cutting of regulations is going to benefit business. In this case, it's going to benefit the business of individual doctors or businesses that are maybe not, well, the hospitals as well, but also businesses, doctors, offices that are on the fringe of the medical industry to begin with, correct? That's right. And actually, it's inter um, I saw uh, the deputy director of CMS speak about the Stark Law uh, on last week at Brookings. And, um, and he did mention that this is, you know, their uh, drive to uh, rethink the Stark Law the Stark Law in relation to um, accountable care organizations in particular was really part of a broader initiative to, to cut down regulation. Um, it will, I can tell you if, you know, people's positions are any indication of their interests, the National Association of Accountable Care Organizations uh, supports exempting ACOs sure. from the Stark Law. 
um, and has really been behind this. So currently, as you may know, um, ACOs actually have a temporary waiver from CMS so that they aren't prosecuted either by the Stark Law or the anti-kickback statute. Uh, But what the the ACOs want more, which is they're saying, look, there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty. We would like you to codify this exception and we can, they can do it in two, the, um, the government can do it in two ways. One is they can have CMS do it, and CMS has some authority to uh, promulgate some exceptions um, under certain conditions. And then we can also have legislation do it. So, And we know that legislation was introduced in November to codify this exception. But by allowing the waiver in the first place, which, as you said, is the current law, mm-hmm. they, it sounds like they have basically opened the door to take the next step. If the waivers had not been... Granted, in the first place, we may not even have this discussion, correct? That's a, that's a good point. I think um, because there was so much uncertainty, I mean, the Stark Law has had a long history of, uh, because it's been changed so many times, given so many exceptions, given so many exceptions to the exceptions, it's very complex that both physicians and hospitals um, have viewed it as sort of this... Um, uh, sort of random ticking bomb. They don't know when they might be prosecuted. Right. So it was, but it was really designed as a temporary measure to say, hey, look, you know, on its face, before we sort of really think hard about, uh, we really want to push this, these ACOs, this ACO model forward. Before you know, we sort of really think about regula- in a regulatory way, in a statute way, what it says, we'll give you a temporary reprieve while you sort that out, give you sort of the best chance of succeeding. And also, we'll think about, you know, how we want to regulate this and deal with this. Mark? Yeah, Seema Verna, who's head of Medicare, was here last week for the Wharton um, Healthcare Program Business Conference and uh, had a chance to talk to her. And uh, I guess what I took away from that is, for ideological reasons, partly, but probably for reasons that I might agree with, the, uh, the administration is uh, in favor of removing regulation and, and rules that are so complicated you need a whole team of lawyers to figure out how to deal with them. And they're not particularly fond of the ACO idea. That was an Obama idea. Right. Uh, although they're willing, if it, I mean, her, she was very, she's a very pragmatic person. If it would save money or improve outcomes, it was okay, but they're not um, ideologically devoted to the idea. And in a way, uh, you know, I have to worry about this because when I stop teaching, I have to go on Medicare immediately. <laughs> and an ACO really is just like a Medicare HMO for Democrats. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, it, it really is, it sets up the same internal incentives as, as is present to a Medicare Advantage HMO. It's just a little kinder and gentler um, because it's not, for example, permitted to deny payment if you, you'd use care out of the system or things like that. But it's basically that model, uh, which, uh, you know, people have been talking about for years and years and likewise talking about coordinated care for years and years. Uh, and uh, it, 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 that speaking of ideology or maybe faith, some people have great faith in the ability of these systems to provide better care at lower cost. And um, uh, but uh, uh, research that I've done with Rob Burns in my department that was the reason why Jenny got in touch with me about this suggests not so fast. There really isn't really good evidence that these ACOs do all that much good to begin with. Uh, they may save a little bit of money now that uh, that the ones that couldn't save money have dropped out. Yeah. <laughs> but because it's voluntary, you can't really tell. And, you know, coordinated care, I don't know how you feel, but from a personal point of view, when I want coordinated care, I want it to be coordinated, but then I want them to stop bothering me. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I think even consumers are sort of um, – 
conflicted about how much coordination. But I, I think, and this is something we've talked with Mark before uh, as well, Jenny, is the fact that that coordination in healthcare is something that I think as a whole we want to achieve, but we also want to achieve it in the process of doing the, the greater good for the patients that are coming into the office and not having kind of a side angle for doctors to be able to potentially make money uh, outside of their uh, outside of their norm. Absolutely. And in fact, I would be even more enthusiastic about ACOs if, in fact, it has been shown that they actually improved the coordination of care. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the evidence that we see both coming out of CMS as well as outside scholars who have done the evaluation on the ACOs, um, namely McWilliams at Harvard, um, have shown that although there are savings, uh, the savings generally come not from increased coordination of care, but basically... Uh, denying or dropping off services to organizations like nursing homes that are not really part of your ACO, sort of that shifting, um, sort uh, basically trying to reduce payments that you know, the that um, go towards uh, go towards other other organizations. Right. And so, uh, so what we see is that. Um, there hasn't been for many ACOs, for example, that are led by hospitals. I mean, they have, even though they have money for the shared savings, they have an incentive. You know, their revenues come from, frankly, inpatient admissions. Yeah. So they have less an incentive to uh, send people to primary care docs to avoid hospitalizations. And what we have found is there's actually only been a small decrease among hospital ACOs in hospital admissions. So it really, you know, a lot of the incre the improvement in costs that we've seen have really been driven by sort of, I would say, you know, a little bit of trickery in terms of uh, the kind of utilization management that's been going on and less about sort of, uh, we don't have any direct evidence that it actually improves coordination of care. Mark? Yeah, I think, uh, although this is not quite as definitive, the research does suggest that if a hospital organizes an ACO or a hospital system, and the reason they would is because they've got all the money and yeah. the borrowing power, it doesn't work nearly as well as if it's organized, say, by a large physician group practice because hospitals are good at treating really sick people in an expensive way. And, right. you know, can, a fa can you make a fast horse run slow or go the other direction is sort of the dilemma that they face. Um, although some have been successful, but, of course, it all depends on the internal culture of the hospital and whether they can persuade all those fast horses that they employ to run slow. But, again, going back to something Jenny just said, I mean, the difference between a large physician group and a hospital in many cases are the beds and if you have yep. the beds yeah the, as you yeah. said yeah. The, there's where you're making your money where a physician's group they're not even concerned about that they are literally thinking about you know treating the patient but also where they are going to potentially refer yeah. them if they need to go someplace yeah, else if you're going to pick an aco uh you should, uh, run by a hospital you should try to find a hospital that's already got all its beds full right so right. It, it, it has it it wants to go in the right direction rather than the wrong jenny way. you had mentioned before about the stark law and some of the the uniqueness uniquenesses about the law and, and things that that also are, are i guess of question Looking at the Star Club, like what? What are some of the things that are that are foremost in your mind? Yeah, so the um, I guess the three main features you want to keep in mind, some of which we, uh, we've already discussed. The first is that um, it is uh, written as a blanket prohibition for self referrals. Consequently, when organizations or you know individuals have found that hey, you know there may be some cases where hey, I'm a doctor 
and maybe I work with a hospital, and why don't I send my, um, and, and I also treat patients at the hospital, so I'm getting some compensation. I, I would like to send my patients there, but hey, Stark prohibits me from doing that. Right. Um, that seems like a reasonable thing to do to uh, accommodate. And so uh, uh, because it's a blanket prohibition, the Stark Law, um, we start introducing exceptions. So we can say, oh, there's some exceptions if, you know, for this case or for that case. And so what we now see uh, characterizing the Stark Law is multiple exceptions, um, either done legislatively or um, through regulation, um, and which essentially weaken uh the law and regulation. Uh, the second feature to keep in mind, which is kind of interesting and why hospitals are in play, is even though it looks like we're regulating doctors, uh, part of the Stark Law uh, uh, imposes a penalty for um, anyone who submits a claim for a referral that was prohibited. And what that means is, hey, if a doctor refers a patient and shouldn't have done that to the hospital and the hospital tries to bill for it, they are on the hook for that claim. And in fact, it's about, I think the penalty is, you know, $10,000, say, per claim, as well mm -hmm. as three times the amount that they were trying to bill for. So hospitals, in a way, have more at stake. And perhaps that's why with ACOs, uh, they're really feeling strongly about this. How much recognition is there out there of, of exactly what we are potentially looking at if, in fact, the Stark Law is changed sometime in the next several months? Well, the ACOs are acutely aware of that. In terms of the general population, I would say um, probably diddly squat. Um, so, I mean, I don't know that most patients, for example, we would care about maybe what doctors um, are aware of, and they are vaguely aware of in the sense that they are trying to comply. Um, but I would say patients are largely unaware of um, participation in ACOs and how that might affect them and, and affect their providers. Mark? Uh, yeah, so I think uh, the administration is probably moving in the direction of re removing um, uh, or get, uh, removing restrictions on ACOs. The original regulations went on page after page and then creating this kind of safe harbor from pre-existing regulations that we're talking about. And ideally, its vision would be, well, then they should just compete and the management of the ACOs should be given free freedom as to how they want to contract with various sources that are going to provide care for the patients, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, including uh, whether they want to police. Uh, uh, they will do the policing of excess referrals to a physician-owned facility rather than have the go federal government try to, <laughs> we're here to help you, step in yeah. and do that. Uh, but of course, the, uh, the danger is one we've already talked about, that because the top line incentive to the ACO, if it's interested in profits, thank God most of them have other interests. Interest, but is is to do as incur as little cost as they can, which may mean that they uh, will try to not provide services that might be worth more than their cost, and so that's the danger. And the, of course, the the solution to that is well, we're going to measure outcomes so that I can look up stars or some measure of the outcome from the different ACOs that I might, in that fateful day when I go on Medicare, want to choose among. Uh, and what I can do right now for Medicare Advantage, uh, but how good those are and, you know, whether people are really up to, uh, you know, we're not used to thinking of health care that way. It, it's, we need a Michelin guide for hospitals and health systems, but it's not the way people are used to picking their doctors and hospitals. I have about 30 seconds left. What's the reaction of the insurance industry to this? Well, you know, Medicare, since uh, I, I suppose they're waiting with bated breath, the Stark Law 
primarily governs uh, Medicare transactions, yeah. Yeah. but there's certainly spillovers and there's some certainly leadership value um, to CMS taking a stand. Yeah, there's some private ACOs uh, uh, above, above and beyond Medicare. They've been kind of a dud. I mean, there, right. there's some, and but they haven't really taken off. But the uh, there is a uh, I mean, in, private insurers were in some sense protected by the Stark <coughs> Law from having to police referrals in, in of physicians treating their patients because yeah. Medicare was doing it, uh, and they'd like to continue to piggyback on Medicare. Great having you both here. Thanks great. very much right, for coming great. in, Genevieve. Thanks, Dan. Genevieve Cantor, Mark Pauley from uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania in the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.